You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about. Okay, there we go. Hello, people. Sorry about the wait. Welcome if you're listening on the podcast. Um, this is episode 63 of the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Um, what you see behind you is not the normal. I don't live out of a hotel or a kind of a service station. I'm actually on holiday in Menorca, and but I still have to do the show. The show must go on. Um, so, yeah, that's why. So, bienvenido de, de Hotel Paradiso en las Islas Baleares, sobre todo desde Menorca. Un beso a todos. There you go. That's as much Spanish as you're going to get for this particular episode. Um, so... If you're listening to the podcast, then you, as always, you're welcome to join us live. Um, we go live in two places. We go live in the Sports Topia Association Facebook page, um, where you don't have to be a member of the STA. Um, you just join up with the page, um, and then you can join us there. Um, and if you don't want to come via Facebook, then you can join us via the YouTube stream. And in both cases, you'll be able to comment live. Um, and when you comment your question, if you want, can come up onto the screen with your kind of Facebook or YouTube icon. And it's all a great little networking opportunity. And it's a nice chance for you also uh, to have a look at what happens within the STA walls. So there we go. Right. Before um, we move into tonight's episode, I just want to say thanks um, to last week's guests. Um, so the wonderful Gemma Oliver and Andy Hosgood. So Gemma from the Physiotherapist Support Group, who we've spoken to before on the show, was here this time with Andy Hosgood, the founder of Elevate Your Clinic. Um, and they were talking about a fascinating subject, really interesting hearing from a physio's perspective um, about the integration of sports therapists um, into private practice and physiotherapist roles. Um, uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, it's quite an uplifting one for sports therapists in particular, because um, both... Gemma and um, Andy were talking about how there seems to be a, a lack of physio roles being filled um, in private and clinical practice because employers are asking for physios. So there's a kind of a double-edged sword here where employers uh, need to wise up a little bit and realise that they're advertising for a role and not for like a profession. Um, and also maybe sports therapists um, need to have the sports yeah, sports therapists need to have the confidence to maybe write letters to if they see a job application which says physio look at the job spec if they are looking for a particular set of skills which you feel you've got with your sports therapy degree and um, then write and say look i appreciate you said you need physio but i can do all of this and more yeah because that's the only way from each side that we're going to change this kind of traditional idea that we need a physio in clinic it has to be a physio with msk okay a lot of the time as a sports therapist you'll have the skills um, to work in MSK skills, thanks to particularly if you've done the degree, which a physio won't have spent that much time on those particular skills. So um, more about that if you want, and um, you can listen to the podcast or you can listen to it on our website. Um, all of the episodes in video and audio version are available at the Sports Therapy Association website, so you can see it there as well. Um, and obviously, again, if you do like the podcast, then do please, please, please give us a rating um, and uh, a little comment, um, particularly on Apple Podcasts, because that's what just makes the show reach new ears which is what it's all about we don't do it for the money we just do it for the love that's what we are pure altruism and to make sure as many people see uh, our wonderful guests talking of wonderful guests been looking forward to this all week and that says a lot because i've been swimming and running and eating all inclusive all week so to have this episode on my mind is something quite amazing um but it's a it's a subject very true to my own heart because i know that i don't do this very well at all it's going to be all about sleep OK, something which really we've already kind of insinuated we need to be looking at more when we particularly do the subjective um, assessment of consultation with our clients or patients. Uh, we need to look at subjective and ask them about things like uh, sleep and how that's affecting their life rather than jumping into some objective test and noticing that they've got one shoulder high and the other, etc., etc. You know what I'm talking about. So um, this evening, I'm very excited to say that we've got somebody who I've been following and listening to on, on many, many podcasts. Um, um, an expert in the field and uh, Dr. Amy Bender is going to be talking about the different um, stages of sleep, the difference between the quality and the quantity of sleep, ways of measuring your sleep, um, advice to give to clients, um, symptoms which might signify that we need to actually, as always, maybe refer our client to a professional um, and lots more on the topic as well. Um, so I think without further ado, I will bring you Dr. Amy Bender, hopefully who will not now ironically be speaking like a chipmunk. Let's do it. <laughs> Hi, Amy. Hi, Dr. Bender. 
Hi, Amy. Hi, it's good to hear from you without the uh, chipmunk voice. He he didn't believe me. I, I tried two different computers, bad. and he still sounded like a chipmunk. I wish I'd let you feel that that was my real voice to make you feel really guilty. You know, it's, but it's no, I don't speak like a chipmunk far from him. Thank you so much for joining us. Particularly as you are, are you in Calgary at the moment? I am. I'm in Calgary. You are. Fantastic. So you're in Calgary. I'm in Menorca and the rest of the world is watching us. This is truly international. It's a fantastic thing. Um, so, yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, like I say, at the moment, can you see on your computer the chat on the side? Can you see names going up and down? Some people can see and some people can't. Like if I bring up this on the screen, Catherine Reimer oh, says, hi, everyone. Yes. There you go. So if you see anything in the column that you think is an interesting question, you're welcome, very welcome to say, Matt, can you just stop talking for a second? I've seen something a bit more interesting in the side there. I'd like to address that question. Yeah, just cut me in mid-sentence. That's fine. Um, so, yeah. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for joining us. Of course, I've got the polo on. There it is on that side. Of course, very professional we are. I'm sitting on my bed in a hotel room. Yeah, Catherine, thanks for joining us. Um, and everybody else who's joining us as well via YouTube. Hi to you as well. Right then. So um, I've listened to you so many times and admire you. You like the podcast, don't you? You've done quite a few podcasts now, which is great. I'm not saying you're overdoing it, but I really was trying to find a different way of saying, so how did you get into sleep science? Because I've heard you <laughs> say it about <laughs> 10 times. But, but, and you must be sick of talking about your aunt, although I imagine your aunt's a wonderful person. But I don't, I don't think there's another way of starting this podcast uh, apart it's... from saying, how did you get into sleep science? Take it, it away. It, it, I mean, it's how it all started. I can't make up new stories. So, um, yeah, my uh, my aunt was a sleep technologist. I was looking, I was kind of at a crossroads in my career. And she said, you know, come out to my lab, see what I do. So I went out there and she showed me, she hooked up a patient with electrodes on the head, um, you know, looking at respiratory. So, uh, cannula in the nose, um, you know, belts across the chest, uh, leg movements, everything you would need in order to diagnose a sleep disorder. And those of you who have been in a sleep lab, you understand how many wires, you know, uh, this adds up across time. Um, and so she showed me how those signals were translated on the screen and the different stages of sleep, um, you know, which we can go into. Um, and then I was hooked. It was just so fascinating to me that I went back home, called up every single sleep lab that I could. And there was one particular lab that let me volunteer. Um, so I was able to do some overnight studies and ended up landing a job as a sleep technologist at Washington State University, Spokane, where the person who I volunteered for um, was actually on the hiring committee for the director. And so it was kind of serendipitous that I landed this job with no real experience. Um, so I was a sleep technologist there for, this was a sleep deprivation lab. So we sleep deprived individuals for 62 hours. So we're talking about two full nights without sleep. These were some of the studies that we were running. Um, and then was a sleep technologist scoring those studies for different stages of sleep, looking at the brainwave activity, the EEG activity, and also helping run these studies and train research assistants on how to do these kind of hookups. But I was kind of at a ceiling. I really wanted to explore different questions on my own. And so in order to do that, I, I got my master's and PhD in experimental psychology at the same lab and then ended up doing a postdoc at University of Calgary, which brought me up to Canada, working with Canadian Olympic team athletes and professional athletes. And then currently I'm at Cerebra, where it's a sleep technology startup where we're really focused on, you know, individualized treatment and really trying to change the way we treat uh, sleep disorders and and just help people sleep better in general. Fantastic. Um, it's interesting. I mean, my personal experiences. I don't think I know. I don't think I know anybody who's actually 
been wired up whilst they slept and had that kind of analysis done. Um, I'm interested to hear if anybody watching the show has either had it or know anybody who's had it. It seems to me within my circle of experience, something which um, not many people um, have experienced. Um, and I can't imagine it. I think more people are probably used to the idea these days of wearing some kind of device or that's become quite popular with your Fitbits over here and the different things you can lie on top of. Um, to start off, because I think most people will have heard of that, how reliable are they? Is there a comparison or is it kind of like giving you data which is not really helping at all or, or does it depend on the device? Yeah, I mean, I think they're really great at starting the conversation about sleep and potentially implementing behavior change. So if you are, you know, if you're wearing the device and it's saying you're getting five hours of sleep, you know, it may motivate you to get more sleep um, versus if you weren't wearing the device. So I think it's it's really useful in that situation. Um, the reliability is a bit shaky. So the re reliability, validity, um, you know, there's been some studies to show that they're pretty good at estimating sleep duration. But when it comes to the sleep stages, they are, have a very difficult time accurately measuring those sleep stages. So when they compare the wearable devices to the in-lab polysomnography with all the wires and measuring brainwave activity, you know, they're, they aren't doing a very good job at that. So there's definitely some improvement that needs to be made. Um, at Cerebro, we are actually working on developing a wearable device that is, is going to be measuring brainwave, brainwave activity at the source where sleep occurs versus these wearable devices that, you know, it's kind of a proxy for sleep. So there's definitely room for improvement when it comes to wearables. And I think also... They can potentially cause orthosomnia. So if you're if you're an anxious person and you know you're really worried about your sleep or you're focused on perfection when it comes to sleep, you know that can lead to some some problems. I'm so glad you said that. That's interesting. Yeah, because I do worry sometimes. Like, because I work with a lot of runners, and I know you're from a running background yourself, a accomplished Ironman. How can we say Ironman anymore with all the cancelling and kind of stuff going on now how can we still say iron man i feel guilty saying it but iron person means nothing anyway you've done the iron man competition so we'll just stick with that but um it does sound like a weird word we won't get into that conversation now but um yeah i worry about devices because i think people get a little bit besotted and they're spending too much time looking at what pace they're doing and 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 how many how high their cadence is and i imagine it could be the same thing when people start instead of just going to sleep and concentrating on the obvious things like well, we'll get to talk about that in a second but yeah i think it could increase anxiety so yeah um just one thing to add because, on. on oh i was just going to add on um you know, it's about the feedback. So there, I think more research needs to be done in this area, but I am very curious about the feedback and how that may impact someone's performance. So for example, there was a study that showed that REM sleep, uh, when they told participants that they got more REM sleep, they actually performed better versus the group where they're like, you didn't, you know, you didn't get very much REM and they performed worse. And so it's the same thing. It's that kind of feedback. And we don't really know the impact of that feedback on performance. But one thing that I recommend to people is to really evaluate your sleep without going directly to the device. You know, so think about, OK, I see it seemed like I slept pretty well last night. And then, you know, looking at the feedback and potentially you may disagree with the feedback. And it could be that. It just didn't measure sleep properly last night. Okay. Yeah, great points. I've got so many questions for you in my head. I don't think I'm going to sleep. I couldn't sleep last night. I was thinking about questions to you today. Ironic, isn't it? Um, okay, different stages. You mentioned REM. Fantastic group. Most people have heard of REM for that probably reason. But let's. can you tell us about the different stages of sleep? And maybe I'm interested in also, I know there's, there's variation amongst humans as always, but the kind of time, more or less a percentage during the night spent in each stage. Mm -hmm. So there are, there's kind of sleep is divided into two main categories, non-REM sleep and REM sleep. So REM sleep is rapid eye movement. And that's how it was kind of named is they saw they were measuring electrical 
activity of the eyes and found that there were these rapid eye movements occurring during this stage. And so REM was discovered in that way. And then also there is also non-REM, which is composed of three different stages. So non-REM one is the lightest stage of sleep, takes up about 5% of our sleep time across the night. Non-REM two is um, takes up about 50% of our sleep time across the night. So it's a very broad category. And then we have non-REM stage three, which is the deepest stage of sleep. That's where growth hormone is being released, tissues are being repaired. And a lot of that um, deep sleep is occurring in the first half of the night, whereas a lot of the REM sleep will occur in the last half of the night. And although we cycle through non-REM to REM in about 90 to 110 minutes, so at the beginning of the night, you'll get a lot of that deep sleep, you'll have a little REM period occurring, maybe five minutes, you'll go back into the deep sleep, and then the REM periods will kind of increase as the night goes on. And so uh, REM sleep it takes up about 25% of our sleep time across the night. Um, and as I mentioned, occurs a lot in the last half of the night. And that's where dreaming occurs, where you're going to wake up, remember a dream. Although you can dream in any stage of sleep, REM is where you, you, know, you wake up from that dream and you remember it. Okay, interesting. Tell us a little bit more about the... Um... The stage three, which where you said that's where like the healing can occur. That's where the kind of like the recovery is if you've been exercising both physically and mentally, I think as well. Tell me a little bit more of that. Well, when you exercise, actually, you have an increase in stage three, the deepest stage of sleep where growth hormone is being released. And it's kind of, you know, there's an association there. So you need more recovery. So growth hormone is being released. You're getting more deep sleep you know, after a, a hard workout, let's say. Um, so that's where growth hormones being released, tissues are being repaired. Also, there's a lot of memory benefits as well. Um, so we see mem like pruning, memory pruning, where you're kind of getting rid of memories that you don't need, and you're also consolidating memories. Um, but, you know, it's hard to try and like really focus on that deep sleep. Of course, there's things we can do to improve sleep quality. Um, but a lot of the time, you can't really control the amount of deep sleep you're going to get. You can't really control the amount of REM sleep that you get. So it's just overall important to make sure that you have a good sleep duration. So between seven and nine hours of sleep per night for an adult, more like eight to 10 for a teenager. And then the more the younger you are, the more sleep that you need. Um, but also, you know, there are some things you can do to improve sleep quality and maybe boost that deep sleep a little bit more as well, which we can talk about later. Mm. Okay, the questions are starting to come in, but you guys are going to have to wait because I've got a lot in my head I've got to get out or I can't just concentrate. So I will get to you, don't worry, people. I know it shows about you and not me, but for the moment. Okay, so seven to nine, that's the quantity aspect. So is the seven to nine based on that's the way you're going to get into the deep sleep stage and therefore get the benefits cognitively and, and recovery-wise? Is that why you need seven to nine? There's more chance of getting that deep sleep or...? That well, you know, as I mentioned, the deep sleep is occurring in the first half of the night. So a lot of times, even if you're getting, let's say, five hours of sleep, you're probably getting most of that deep sleep already. Um, we actually did a study in this where we were comparing shift workers sleeping during the day versus those people sleeping at night. And we found that there were actually equal amounts of deep sleep between the groups, um, despite the shift workers sleeping way less, and I think it was around two hours less, they were preserving like your brain and your body kind of preserves that part in the first half of the night. Um, and then, but when you're cutting off sleep, you're losing a lot of that REM sleep, which is also involved in memory, um, procedural memory and different kinds of cognitive tasks. Um, so it's it's likely that you are preserving that deep sleep, but you would be probably cutting off a lot of the REM sleep if you're not getting enough sleep. Okay, fantastic. Um, and I guess there's so many variables and factors as well, uh, which is what brings in the quality as well, isn't it? Because there's plenty of chance that you're getting to seven to nine hours sleep, but then the quality isn't there. So could you tell us a little bit about how the quality can vary? 
Yeah. So it's not just about the quantity. So there are three kind of main factors that I always talk about when it comes to sleep. Uh, the first one is quantity or duration, which we talked about. The second one is quality. So you can't just, um, you know, be in bed for 10 hours. But if you have an underlying sleep disorder, uh, the 10 hours isn't going to make a difference because the quality of your sleep is so poor. So you have to kind of get that sleep disorder um, fixed. Um, and then it's also about the timing as well. So as I mentioned with the shift workers, um, it's more difficult to sleep during the day just because our melatonin is being released at night, which helps us stay asleep and improves that sleep quality. So it's not just about the quantity or the quality. It's also about the timing. And all of us have kind of individualized um, chronotypes. So we want to go to bed at a certain time. You may be a night owl, want to go to bed after midnight. And that's probably likely when your melatonin is being released. You're just not tired earlier. Um, and so versus someone who may be in bed by 9 p.m. and be able to go to sleep fine and wake up early. So um, trying to align your sleep window with your chronotype is something that's something important for people to check out. And we can we can adjust the chronotype. You know, it is something inherent, but there are certain things we can do with light exposure, with melatonin, in order to kind of bring us back to a normal, more normal chronotype, because our society expects us to be up early. And there's this thing called social jet lag, where uh, there's a mismatch between your off days and your work days. And when that mismatch is very large, so for example, if you're going to bed at 2 a.m. on the weekends and sleeping until noon, um, the bigger mismatch between the weekends and the weekdays, the more social jet lag a person has, and just the more metabolic problems, mood problems, performance issues that we see. So interesting. Um yeah, chronotypes, that's a great word. I'm going to use that with my wife when she keeps asking why I'm so grumpy in the morning. I don't like the light switched on. It's me. It's my chronotype. Then ask me to change my chronotype. It's good. Um, it's, um, I once heard, and this is probably just a myth, um, and, and I wanted to ask you because you're probably the person to clear it up. I was told by somebody once that a certain percentage of the population due to evolution are always kind of night owls because they're the people who would guard the tribe whilst the others are all sleeping. So it's almost an evolutionary track to make sure that tribes were not attacked and somebody was awake to what does that make is that based on any kind of anthropological truth or have you heard that before? Yes, yes. Actually that's how they think chronotypes were came okay. about is because they had a certain part of the tribe watching over at night versus a certain part, you know, watching in the early evening. Um, and so that's that's kind of what they're thinking and how chronotype evolved into what it is today so people like myself who like to stay awake at night and because someone on the internet says something is not true whatever the reason is and and then they're tired in the morning we're actually the guardians we're the we're the kind of guardians of the planet really aren't we we're the kind of guardian the tribe yeah yeah our ancestors um, were well, you know, uh, night owls, they, they, they have a hard time because of the way society works. Um, so I think, yeah, we really got to respect our night owls out there. Thank you. That makes me feel good. As a child, I remember at the age of, I suppose all babies, the problems were sleeping, but I really didn't sleep and I tantrum. And, and this was going back to early 70s. And I was taken to a specialist and basically they just said, you've got to lock him in his room and just let him do his thing. And he'll go to sleep eventually when he wants to. I think they followed the advice of Dr. Spock at the time, which was a book which all children kind of were given, or parents were given. Yeah, so basically they just had to put earplugs in downstairs and just lock me in my room and let me cry. And eventually they'd go in at five in the morning. I'd eventually be asleep in the corner with toys all over me. But when it comes to babies and children, is it useful there seeing if there is a chronotype issue involved as opposed to parents trying as hard as they can to get their kids down if they understand that maybe the child is going to be a bit of a night owl can it help if that's identified early or is it very difficult to identify something like that well so what we see in the research is that actually uh, chronotype changes as you age so what we see generally is that there is a in early childhood, we're more likely to be more of an early bird uh, versus adolescent, where it clearly changes to a night owl. 
Um, and, you know, a lot of people say, oh, just go to bed early. You know, I've had, I've been in Twitter wars with people who strength, I don't want to throw the strength and conditioning coaches under the bus, but, um, wow. you know, they're like, they're like, just go to bed early. Like you're just being lazy, you know? And um, in reality, no, it's about biology. So um, they're just, their melatonin isn't being released early enough. And, and so there is a shift towards being a night owl during adolescence. And then we kind of shift more towards uh, early, uh, early bird when we hit, you know, fifties or so. Um, getting up there in age. So there is a transition across the lifespan, although there will be um, potentially some night owls occurring in childhood, you know, there's some variability. And so, yeah, it is challenging. Sometimes you don't want to be awake while in bed. You don't want to go to bed too early because then you're going to start associating your bed with being awake. And so it is a little bit tricky. And so there's been times with my own son where, you know, he's he's eight years old and he he's like, Mom, I can't go to sleep. And I taught him all these uh, breathing techniques and they aren't working. And, um, you know, I'll just say, hey, come come downstairs. You know, I don't want him being in the room for two hours awake. Um, so I'll have him come into a new environment and then kind of send him back up when he's a bit sleepier. That's brilliant. There's so much, there's going to be so much advice in this podcast for obviously we're predominantly this goes out to soft tissue therapists who are working with people who are in pain. That's why they're coming to see us. But there's going to be advice for asking about those own people's sleep patterns. And also something which a lot of therapists who haven't had children don't appreciate is if you're dealing with a client who's got young children, that just changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, that just can, can play a huge part in prolonging pain experiences and and stress and anxiety and stuff so there's gonna be a lot in here for therapists to look back in i'm going to come back to how we can actually help people sleep better in a second but i better um uh put a few of these questions to you from the people who joined us live trevor i think your question was answered wasn't yes you said it was do the percentages stay about the same if hours of sleep are longer or shorter than usual i think we covered that where did we see uh, becky welcome how are you doing Oh, here we go. This is from Sports Therapy Association. Could be Gary, um, could be Jake. Question is, I'll read it out for people listening to the podcast. Is there any value in the saying that hours sleep before midnight are better than those after midnight? That is a very good question. And my answer would be, it depends on your chronotype. So if you are a night owl, it actually would be better suited for you to go to bed later. And it doesn't matter if you're in bed by 10 p.m., you know, you would want to time your sleep with your melatonin release. So when you start to feel sleepy. Um, So I would say this in general is a myth. I hear this a lot that, oh, it's the hours before midnight that count, you know, twice as much or whatever. But in reality, um, no, that's a total myth. And you want to sleep more in line with your chronotype and when you feel tired. Okay, so getting so if we're working with a client rather than telling you've got to get a bit earlier, more useful advice would be. I know you wouldn't ask, do you know, your chronotype, but do you know what sort of a person you are when it comes to sleeping? And is that something they could? Is there something online where it could tell them or is it just? like a little questionnaire or something to help them work out what type of sleep they are? Yeah, actually, um, there's uh, a website online that has a chronotype questionnaire. Maybe we could put it in the show notes after. Yeah, Um, that'd be great. But yeah, it's just a couple questions that you fill out and it helps you determine, you know, whether or not you're a night owl, early bird. And, you know, about uh, 70% of us are kind of in between. So there is a big right. chunk who can go either way, you know, and then there's about 15% who are really those night owls wanting to go to bed after 1am, you know, wake up later. And then the early, about 15% of us are early birds as well. So if you're working with somebody and trying to give them or monitor their, let's imagine an athlete of some form, you're trying to suggest when their training should be or when their exercises should be or their sleep patterns getting to find out what their chronotype is might be useful before just giving them a a a plan which you give everybody 
Yeah, I mean, especially if they have the flexibility. A lot of us don't have the flexibility to create our own schedule. But uh, there, there has been some research showing that um, depending on your chronotype, you perform better during a certain time of day. So for early birds, it was more that early afternoon. And for night owls, it was more like that evening, evening time. Um, so I think it, it is something useful to ask. Now, sometimes you can't really do much about it because you have school or you have work. And, and that's when we would want to incorporate some circadian rhythm techniques. So for example, we want to control light. Light is our biggest zeitgeber. It's our biggest time giver. It tells us what time it is within our body. And um, so light, having lots of light in the morning is going to help shift circadian rhythms to an earlier time. Whereas if I'm getting lots of light in the evening, um, that's going to shift my circadian rhythms later, which is what we typically don't want because we have to get to bed. You know, we have to get up early for these activities. So um, if, we're, if we have someone who is more of a night owl, but it's not really currently working with their schedule, we would want to get lots of light in the morning, preferably outside or even using a seasonal affective disorder light. Um, and we'd want to block light at night. So we'd want to block out the blue light at night, which is our what our circadian rhythms are most sensitive to. So blocking out the blue light with blue light blocking glasses, 99%, we're talking like the dark orange, dark red, um, blue light blocking glasses would be useful. And potentially adding in melatonin in these individuals as well. And um, it can even be a small 0.5 milligrams is like a physiological dose of melatonin, which could help shift their rhythms to more of a normal time. Tell me more about the glasses. These things I know, I people was, should uh, be wearing at night. I was seeing if I, <laughs> I, I, was seeing if I had a pair. Uh, I don't have one. Um, on my desk right now. But uh, they're just these orange glasses that you wear. They're very affordable. You can get them for, you know, $25. Um, and mine basically look like something a grandma would wear. <laughs> my grandma used to wear like these wrap around kind of orange glasses. Um, and okay. so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what they look that's what you should be looking for is the dark orange or amber red is going to block out a lot of that uh, blue light. And so there are blue light blocking glasses out there that are clear, but it's probably only blocking out maybe 10% and they're more useful for computer use during the day. Um, and so blue light blocking glasses two hours before your normal bedtime will help preserve some of that melatonin if, for example, you're working late at night um, or you have, you know, schoolwork you're doing or even just watching TV in those two hours before bedtime. Um, I highly recommend getting wearing blue light blocking glasses. For me, I try and wear them, especially if I haven't been outside during the day a lot. So um, being outside, especially in the morning hours, can protect you from the negative impact of electronic devices at night. So the more light history you have throughout the day, the less uh, impact these electronic devices are going to have. So that's something to keep in mind too. Like I don't necessarily wear them all day. If I've been outside for a few hours, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily need them, but it, it's something worth to try. That's huge. It's brilliant. And these are just, again, gems that, soft tissue therapists can provide to clients who have identified through the right subjective kind of questions that they do have a few issues and problems getting to sleep. These are lovely little gems you can add to be that therapist who comes up with something useful and different. Fantastic. Um, you mentioned electronic devices at night. I mean, that's something which is quite well known now. I don't know to what extent people actually listen to the advice of like not having any phones on after eight o'clock or not watching too much TV. So it's good to know that if you really have to do that, they just stick these glasses on. But I mean, is, would it, should people be more aware that it can make a, a life-changing experience if you do manage to put the phones down like an hour before sleep? 
There's there's a lot of debate actually among sleep scientists whether electron devices make a difference in in sleep um, and melatonin. So uh, there has been a lot of research in this area, and there the research you know the conclusions are that electronic devices are bad for your sleep quality. They are bad for your melatonin release. But if you take a close look at these studies, you'll see that their light history is they're in a dark room, okay, for two hours prior to the light exposure. So, of course, you know, this light is going to make an impact. So the studies are a little bit unrealistic in that sense. Um, but there are actually circadian rhythm biologists who who really do think that um, that there's kind of a, a riff. Some people think that they do make a difference on your overall sleep quality and have you sleeping poor. Other people think they don't make a difference. Uh, for me, I mean, it's not just about the light, but it's about the content that you're looking at as well. So um, that's something to consider, even if you do have the blue light blocking glasses on, if you're reading the news right before bedtime, you know, that's probably not a good thing for your overall sleep quality and your anxiety levels, for example. So the best piece of advice is to put away the devices about an hour before bedtime and implement a relaxing pre-sleep routine to help prepare your mind and your body for sleep. And that could include taking a warm bath or shower, which is shown to temporarily increase your body temperature, but then it plummets about an hour later, making it good for sleep. Um, writing a to-do list before bedtime has been shown to help you fall asleep quicker versus if you're just journaling about your day. Um, you know, doing some breathing techniques, doing some cognitive techniques, all of those will will overall improve your sleep quality. And I think it'll make, like, if you can continue to do that, build that habit, um, it'll it'll really make a difference down the road. It'll Those benefits will accumulate. Fantastic. Great advice. Okay, let's have a little look at some questions coming down the side here. Um, let me just zoom down a little bit. Da, 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 da. Ed Clark, here we go. We're going to get to the topic of dreams now. Reading it out for podcast listeners, Ed Clark says, why do some people never remember any of their dreams, whereas others, like me, have technicolor dreams and remember lots of them? That's that's a good question. Um, lucky you, that's pretty cool. Um, so actually... It, it's been shown that you only remember your dreams if you wake up during a dream. So that is, so there could be some people out there actually who have really great sleep quality, but they're just not waking up during REM sleep where they would remember that dream. And it doesn't mean that you aren't dreaming or you aren't having REM sleep. Um, I, I don't think I ever, out of the thousand studies that I scored, there has never been an instance where there was no REM sleep occurring during the night, despite what your watch may be telling you. Um, so that's something to keep in mind that you typically only remember your dream if you wake up during your dream. So if you have good sleep quality, it could be that you're you're just not waking up and then not remembering those dreams. Um, it could be a sleep, underlying sleep disorder is another uh, potential option. So, for example, if someone has obstructive sleep apnea, they're stopping breathing during the night and they're, you know, they're just during REM, our muscles are paralyzed. And so it makes it a bit more difficult to breathe. Obviously, the breathing muscles are still going, but there's more chance for uh, breathing events to occur during REM sleep where we don't have a lot of where our muscles are paralyzed. And so it could be an underlying sleep disorder as well, um, if someone's not really um, remembering their dreams. So it could go either way when it comes to dreams. And I, you know, there's lucid dreams, evidently you can, um, where you can kind of control your dreams. And so there's ways to increase that with like writing, having a journal by your bed. And when you wake up, you know, you try and write down if, if you were dreaming, um, you try and kind of, before you go to bed, try and, um, tell yourself, you know, I'm going to have a lucid dream, you know, so there's ways to, help you remember your dreams a little bit better and even potentially control your dreams um, with lucid dreaming. But I am not an expert in that area. 
Great question, Ed. Thanks for that. Um, let's uh, scroll down. Okay, somebody else has got there. Let's have a look. I hear something interesting about twins. Here we go. Um, question here. Um, twins usually have opposite sleep patterns. I can vouch for this as a parent. I apologize to one of my twins um, for changing his chronotype to allow me some sleep during the night. Okay, is that something that twins, do you know about? Have you done, known about the studies on twins? Well, um, about 50% of chronotype is heritable. Um, so there is another 50% that is environmental, you know, so so this this could be true. I mean, a lot of times we will see twins that have similar patterns, um, but there is a potential for there to be different patterns when it comes to twins and chronotype. So that's very interesting that um, that they had the opposite sleep patterns. It could be confirmation bias, though, as in one goes to sleep and the other wakes up and it's just and you only remember those times might, might be. Um, but kids, obviously, you've got three children yourself. Has it three? I think one with three. Three, yes. Um, so you know better than myself, who's got two, that kids just change everything. I mean, sod your chronotype and everything else biologically it may to be. I mean, kids just destroy everything and, and don't stop without <laughs> sounding too despondent. I've got a six year old and a four year old, so I'm kind of coming out of that stage. But this is something advice for people who have got kids um, in terms of helping the children sleep. The things you have mentioned um, have mainly been for adults. We haven't talked about things like caffeine yet, but I guess the light and that is something you can use for children as well. Is there anything else which can help, which people aren't aware of, which advice we could give um, patients to help their children sleep? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like... Yeah, no, no electronic devices before bedtime. I mean, there is some evidence that actually children have uh, more sensitive light. Uh, they're more sensitive to light. And so having electronic devices may actually be more impactful in children at, at making them sleep poorly. Um, you know, if Having some breathing techniques. So for my my kids, I kind of adapted some breathing techniques that I do. So, uh, for example, snake breathing is a good one. So the breathing techniques, you want to breathe out longer than you breathe in. And that's going to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, that uh, relaxation system. And so snake breathing is a good one where you breathe in and then and you're just, you know, you're hissing out and you're breathing out longer than you're breathing in. Um, I have a birthday <laughs> birthday cake breathing that I made up. Um, so four, seven, eight breathing is something we do in adults. So you breathe in for four seconds, you hold your breath for seven seconds and you breathe out for eight seconds. And so I adapted this for my kids to train, and I call it birthday cake breathing. And so you breathe in for four seconds, um, like you're um, sucking in a juice box at a birthday party. So you're like, and then you hold your breath underwater like you're at a beach party. <laughs> this is embarrassing, but I'm, I'm just giving you my children tips. So you hold your breath for seven seconds, and then you blow out the candles for eight seconds. And so there's different little tricks you could do with your kids to make it fun, make the breathing fun. I also do a cognitive technique um, that normally I'll do the cognitive shuffle. So I'll think of a word such as bedtime and I'll imagine all the objects that I can that start with B, ball, baby, bus, banana, move on to the next letter, E, eagle, egg. And I'm imagining these objects, you know, while I'm thinking of them. And then, you know, you just move on to the next letter. Well, a lot of times kids don't, you know, they're too young to know what to do. So I tell them to pick a color. And so I say, okay, pick the color, you know, blue. And, uh, and I have them imagine all the objects that they can that are the color blue. So blueberry, a blue sweater, a blue coat, you know, anything that they can think of that's blue. And then they could go on to another color. Um, ultimately, you know, there could be an underlying sleep disorder. So if your child is really struggling with their sleep, you know, it's occurring three times per week, 
Uh, it's been occurring for three months. You know, this is something you probably want to get checked out from a sleep professional. So I wouldn't try and solve it on your own and really, you know, try and seek out that sleep professional to get some help. Because for my oldest son, he ended up having uh, sleep apnea. And so we had to get his tonsils removed. And, you know, me being a sleep scientist, you would think I would be like right on top of that. But it took it took years before we discovered that. And they thought he had asthma. And, um, you know, it was that he had enlarged uh, tonsils and adenoids. And so once we got those out, his sleep improved dramatically. So much in there for people to listen back to tips for kids. There's a question in here, tips for older people, which I want to come to in a second. Um, but before we do that, you've mentioned a few times now it could be a sign of a sleep disorder. What are some of these? They're like a little checklist where somebody should go and get checked out. And also, who should they go see? Is it via their kind of GP? or So what's the what are the symptoms, first of all, where you should be thinking hmm, something could be up here? If someone's witnessing you stop breathing during the middle of the night, so if you're pausing your breathing during the middle of the night and then you kind of like like snort, um, that could be a sign of sleep apnea. So that would be a sign. If you're really tired during the day and, you know, you're needing a ton of caffeine to get through the day or, um, you know, normally we feel a little bit tired after lunchtime based on our circadian rhythm and that's kind of circadian dip. But if this is occurring a lot earlier, like if you're exhausted upon awakening or if you're exhausted at 10 a.m. where you need a nap, um, that's probably a sign that there could be something going on with your sleep quality. And so the best bet, depending on where you're at, would probably be to go to your GP and then get referred to a sleep center. How many times, I mean, I know the answer to this, but I want you to say it out loud because it makes me think that I need to go and see someone. I think people would be shocked. But how many times would you did you say it's normal to wake up during a night and then how long should it take you to go back to sleep again? Um, so there is actually a definition of sleep quality based on the National Sleep Foundation. And so their definition of sleep quality is that you fall asleep in less than 30 minutes. You wake up no more than one time per night and you fall asleep within 20 minutes of waking up. Um, and so and you're sleeping 85 percent of the time that you're in bed. So, um, you know, kids or parents with kids, this like is a daily occurrence, you know, so obviously um, there are external factors that can go on. But if if your sleep environment is good, if you have no um, pets or kids waking you up and you're continually to like wake up multiple times per night and you're tired during the day, you probably want to get it checked out. I'm thinking, yeah, uh, one big external factor, I guess, is the person you're sleeping next to. Because I find that every time like, your partner turns over, that yes. wakes you up. And, and then and then you both wake up in the morning and say, God, you were moving a lot in the nighttime. And you're thinking, no, no, you were waking up. You know? And you realize neither of you got a good night's sleep. But um, I think, and I've seen this amongst clients as well, and trying to find ways to, especially if one of the, if your partner's snoring or something like that. But is, is, is partner dangerously a reason for poor lack of sleep quality often? I, absolutely. If someone is snoring throughout the night, it can certainly wake up their partner. And that's why there's kind of a trend for sleeping in separate rooms, sleeping, you know, in separate beds. Never say that. Uh, you know, so um, that's why it's it's not just about your own health. If you're snoring a ton, you know, it's also about your partner as well, um, it could be impacting their sleep quality. I've always wanted to, even from a younger age, do you have the program, do you know the program Dragon's Den? Do you know that show? Yeah, That was yes. like four investors, yeah. So I think when I was about 14 or something, because I've never slept well, and I'm always tired during the day, except when I'm exercising. I'm one of those people who will find it difficult to walk up the stairs or open a door, get up from a sofa, but then put me on 10 mile run and suddenly I'm alive and I feel great, but I'm only great during that run. I guess I get my body into a different state where it's just working fantastically, but during the day shattered. But I've always wanted, I think more people would benefit from just having an all night camera on the bed to see how much you are moving about, waking up, looking around, lying down. I think it would be fascinating to see 
because I had the sensation that I'm just turning over probably eight, nine times a night. Mm -hmm. And if you are, I'm also interested in, like sometimes in my life, and I'm sure other people can relate to this, you always wake up at a certain time and you look at your clock and it's not just confirmation bias, it's like it's 4.33 again. This is the same as last night. And with a camera or some kind of investigation, I wonder whether that's the time the boiler clicks or a milk float goes by, or there's probably an external reason for it. But unless you do the investigation, you're never going to know and you're still going to have this poor quality of sleep. So my Dragon's Den moments, which obviously I think Cerebra's already done and covered, obviously, was just that making this kind of home kit where people could improve their quality of sleep by videoing, by making temperature checks, by looking at noise analysis, looking how many times you're turning over, if your partner is snoring, that sort of stuff. Because there must be so much we don't know that's going on during night that's ruining our sleep. Yeah, I mean, we we are in the development of a miniature EEG device, like I mentioned, and really trying to pinpoint lifestyle factors, environmental factors, and how that can impact an individual's sleep. So this is something we're very interested in, and we have a technology to look at sleep quality on a fine grain level with odds ratio product. Um, and so it's more than just the stages of sleep and you're getting 25% deep sleep. You know, we have a way to look at that across the entire night. We have a way to look at the sleep depth across the entire night. And we're finding even in one of uh, a publication that's going to be published soon um, that even like little noise decibels. So the higher the noise decibel the more impact it has on the sleep depth. And so we are very interested in a lot of these environmental factors and can, you know, earplugs, for example, or, uh, you know, we know that earplugs are helpful. We know that eye mask is helpful, but it may be more impactful for a certain individual person. And so that's what we're really interested in is how can we identify these factors that will really impact a person's sleep quality. So stay tuned. Oh, no. And as far as you know, there's not, this is something to give me something quite new for the market, is it then? What you're developing? Something new? Yeah, yeah. We're going to make it available. Um, so it'll be like a wearable device that will be paired with an app that will be able to identify Fantastic. a few of those lifestyle factors. I think that'd be huge. I think, I mean, I'm looking at the website, it's Riga website. And what are the statistics? I know probably, you know, better for Canada and you might not know about the UK or England, but statistically I've seen various numbers suggesting that it's a large amount of the population who are not getting either quantity or quality sleep and suffering for it. And it could affect your whole life, couldn't you, unless it's identified. Yeah, it's it's typically about a third. A third of individuals have um, insufficient sleep or their sleep quality is poor, you know, so they may be in bed for seven hours, but the over underlying sleep uh, quality is poor due to a sleep disorder or other different factors. And we've run out of time now, but that obviously opens up to a lot of your work with, with well, the Olympic level athletes um, and national hockey teams and things. But out of that third, how many of them are also at the same time trying to compete in elite sports? Yeah, um, so I actually did a study in 200 Canadian national team athletes, and we found about 25% had a significant, clinically significant sleep problem. So, you know, one of the parts of that study was to identify these individuals and get them help. And of course, that leads to better health, better performance down the road. So, it, it occurs everywhere, you know, sleep disorders are occurring in many different populations. Um, one thing for your listeners could be um, utilizing the athlete sleep screening questionnaire, which is I helped develop this questionnaire. And if you go to centerforsleep.com, um, you'll be able to take that questionnaire and get individualized recommendations and be able to identify someone who does have a clinically significant sleep problem. So um, yeah, go to centerforsleep.com and then look for the athlete sleep screening questionnaire. And you know, you can even have your clients take it and then email you the results um, so that you can kind of see how that person is sleeping. Fantastic. That's a great resource. I think I can bring this up on the screen. I'm going to put it on full screen for people watching. So, but don't worry, we can still hear you. Let's just put this on here. 
I think this is the right site. Yes, yeah, centerforsleep.com. Yeah, there's a load of information on this. You said that questionnaire is on here as well. If you look, yeah, in maybe if you go to the sleep or? services. Okay. Oh, this is just a screenshot. Oh, just, okay. Just so people can see, but this is the website. This is the website. Um, so it sounds like that's definitely worth checking out if you're working with athletes. Twenty-five percent, and they're there, you know working their heart out to try to perform fantastically, and they're missing out on something so so important to sleep. It's quite incredible. Very incredible. Um, we haven't talked yet, and we don't really have time, but I've. I've I'm not sure how much they are exaggerated, um, but yeah, the increase in risk of injury with less than eight hours sleep a night. I know there's mm. some, as always, yes. we, research, we have to cover that. It's, it's at one stage, that. yeah, it's not, it's not black and white, is it? How would you put it at the moment? Is it something still you'd recommend I mean, to do? There are mixed results. There are definitely mixed results where some studies don't show a relationship. But there has been a significant number of publications out there showing that if you aren't getting enough sleep or if that uh, sleep quality is poor, that you are at a greater risk of injury. So, for example, um, one study found it was like um, adolescent athletes who were getting less than eight hours of sleep versus those who were getting more than eight hours of sleep, those who were getting less had almost a two times uh, injury risk versus those who were getting enough sleep. And this has been shown in the military. Um, there was one study looking at soft tissue injuries, and they found that those who were getting four hours or less compared to those who were getting eight hours had almost like a three times or risk of injury versus those who are getting more sleep. So in general, yeah, it can be, there can be a relationship between sleep and injury risk. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big one. It's still definitely worth um, checking with your clients to see what they're, and there's such a link normally. I mean, there are some people who seem to famously get by on four or five hours a night and they operate fantastically. I think Margaret Thatcher, N equals one, but that was an example in our country, somebody who never had it more than four to five years. Uh, four to five um, hours a night, and she managed to govern the country. But um, for for most people, I think um, asking them to get eight hours a night is, is quite a big task. And I wonder, I worry sometimes whether, I remember a few years ago, it might have been after the military study, where every single kind of post on social media was, if you're getting less than eight hours of sleep, you're in chance of getting injured. I was thinking, this is going to create mm. some massive catastrophizing and stuff because so few people do get eight hours of sleep unfortunately whether it be because of kids or work or whatever but again it's one of these things you set the ideal and say look let's look at this could you find a way of getting a few more hours of sleep or half an hour of sleep is there anything you could manage to try and get some more sleep rather yeah. than jumping down with the other less important factors isn't it Yes, I mean, it is individual. But um, so for example, there was a father or son duo who got four and a half and five and a half hours of sleep. And when they looked at how common that gene mutation occurred, it was one in 4 million people. So the chances are that it's you is pretty slim. You know, we typically say less than 1% can are true short sleepers. And the rest of us need to try and get that minimum seven hours. Um, and seven to nine hours is, is a big range. So it's challenging to figure out how much do I actually need. But if you're waking up without it, like if you go on vacation, for example, hey, you're on vacation right now, you could try this. Um, go to bed when you feel sleepy, wake up when you naturally would wake up, don't set an alarm and just kind of gauge how much are you averaging based on waking up without an alarm clock. Um, and then are you feeling tired during the day? Do you feel pretty good? And I think somebody mentioned uh, regularity in here. Um, regularity is a very important component. And so there's been studies to show that if you take two groups who are getting equal amounts of sleep, but one group is regular and the other group is irregular with their sleep patterns, um, those who are irregular have more uh, performance issues, like with academic performance, they aren't doing as well. They have obviously more social jet lag, their melatonin is just kind of all over the place, and their sleep quality is poor. So trying to go to bed at the same time, trying to wake up at the same time is, is a key factor. 
Fantastic. Look, I know um, it's 9.07. And I know you've bound to have uh, lots of, it's about is it two o'clock where you are. Yeah, two o'clock. So mm -hmm. you've got a full day ahead of you, Amy. So I'm not going to um, keep you much longer. There's so many other questions here, which we haven't. It's, it's a huge subject. You must really enjoy the work you do because people find it so personal, don't they? When they know that you're an expert on sleep, they must have so many questions for you, which shows that it's such an important part of our culture and, and our need, isn't it? Um, yeah, but I'm, maybe, I'm most, maybe. I'm, I was going to say, I'm the most popular person at the party. They they all want to tell me about their <laughs> sleep problems. <laughs> I bet you love that. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe next time, um, if we could, if we could do a follow-up with it, You've proven here, people, that when we say things like send questions to Matt at the STA.co.uk, that's when you should send questions to Matt at the STA.co.uk. So maybe we could do a follow up or something um, um, and we'll have exact questions for people like there's people talking about um, what about for older populations, which is really important. There's something about is snoring uh, classified as a as a, um, a sleep disorder. That's interesting to know as well. Can you have quality sleep whilst you're snoring? So many. I'm interested, actually. Can you have quality sleep and still snore all night? Well, mm, I mean, is snoring pain? is a obstruction of the airway. It's a partial obstruction of the airway. So it's not ideal. Mm. It's strange. Some of my best night's sleeps tend to be if I have been at some kind of celebration, drunk too much red wine and then snored all night. My wife complains, but I wake up in the morning feeling totally refreshed. Normally because I haven't dreamt. I always feel better if I can't remember any dreams. If I can remember dreams and I feel like, I, that's why I'd like a camera. Sometimes I feel like I haven't been asleep. I've just been sitting there thinking about different scenarios in my head, which I call dreams. Um, I've got to feel myself one night. Do, is, is it possible that you get a better night's sleep when you don't remember your dreams? Um, well, we kind of we kind of talked about that. So, yeah, if you're not waking up during your dreams, you wouldn't be remembering your dreams. And so your sleep quality may be better. Uh, but generally with alcohol, it messes up your sleep quality. So you, okay. you may be an anomaly here. <laughs> oh, it's the best night's sleep. I think it depends if you're the sort of person who's got so much going over in your head. Like some people, again, I'll turn to my wife and go, when you close your eyes at night time, what do you see? And she'll go nothing i've closed my eyes it's just empty it's relaxed and i'm like i close my eyes i've got gorillas with symbols i've got elephants dancing around i've got all sorts of things happening in my head but some people seem just to that's why i can't go to sleep straight away it's, it's i take out the visual input that's it my mind's on fire yeah you gotta you gotta try the breathing you gotta try the I've cognitive some, birthday, yeah, yeah try those out Okay, that's great. Um, these are all tips which I'll make sure go into the uh, show notes, um, Amy. It's been fantastic. There's so much information there um, and so much more we could ask you. So thank you so much for your time. Um, if people want to get into contact um, with you or find out more of the things you've been talking about, um, what was the website um, what's the website you mentioned? I haven't got a screenshot of it. Oh, Center for Sleep. Com. That's Please where you can go sleep. to the athlete sleep screening questionnaire. Um, yeah. And then you can find me on social media. I'm at Sleep for Sport. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and yeah, I also am working on the Sleep into Win. Yeah, Sleep into uh, yeah. Can people go to that yet? I want to put that up here because it's a great website. And um, let's just put it in here. It's kind so, of in development. Oh, is it? Okay, so it's not there yet, but this is like before it's even ready, people. Sleep in to win. Stick it in your books, and um, that'll be one to look for. Is it going to be a And then com? check out check out Cerebra as well. That's my current role. That's Cerebra.sleep, isn't it, if I remember rightly? Is that the website? Um, I should know. Just Google Cerebra. Here we go. Look, I'll bring it up. Da, 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 da. Uh, for people who are listening to podcasts, yeah, yeah. there we go. We knew that. Yeah, there's a load of information on there as well. And and just again, like I said, the interesting statistics of, um, I think it was on here where we had the, uh, how many people was it? I think it was a third of people or something. Oh, well, have a look, people. Anyway, cerebra.health. Cerebra there's a lot of information on there as well. Um, right, people, thank you very much uh, for joining us, Amy. It's been it's been way too short, but there's so much in there. I can't wait to listen back to it to myself. 
Um, have you got anything interesting coming up uh, for the rest of the year, apart from developing your website? Any more trips to see Oprah or kind of TED Talks, anything like that? Um, I mean, I'm doing a couple conferences. So I'm doing one in Monaco in November. Um, that's the IOC prevention conference. So maybe some people, it's an injury prevention conference. Um, and then I'm also going to be attending World Sleep in Rome in 2022 and have a couple other conferences lined up. Nice, nice places to go to, to do conferences. Monaco and Rome, you pick well. You pick well, I'm sure. It's yeah, yeah fantastic. I'm excited. And there's an awful lot of um, things online with you speaking and, and things people can look up. So just put in Dr. Amy M. Bender. I don't know what the M stands for. You're going to have to tell me now, actually. I keep seeing Marie. Marie, there we go. So Dr. Amy M. Bender. Yeah, there's plenty of information out there, people, if you enjoyed what um, Dr. Amy Bender said today. So look that up. Um, thank you so much again, Amy. Um, Thanks for we'll having talk, me. Um, we'll do I'm, a part two. I do hope so. I'm going to say goodbye to people now and then we won't be live anymore. And I'll just say thank you to again briefly now. OK, so people um, listening on the podcast, thanks very much. If you did enjoy the show, then please do leave a rating on Apple Podcasts in particular. And thanks to those who joined us live. Um, as always, it's great to have you here. And if you didn't join live and you fancy joining us live, then it's always Tuesday, eight o'clock um, UK time. So that's British Standard Time at the moment. Um, next Tuesday, we're going to be talking to Dr. Claire Minchell, who some of you will know came off her bike recently and has had shoulder surgery and she's rehabilitating for that. But um, yeah, fantastic strength and conditioning coach who I think recognizes the importance of sleep. So she's not in the same kind of umbrella group, which um, Amy was referring to before. But yeah, um, Dr. Claire Minchell will be with us next week, people. So Tuesday at eight o'clock, do come and join us. But for now, on behalf of myself and Dr. Amy Bender, thank you very much and uh, take care of each other. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about it.